Good afternoon again. I'm Charles Garland. I'm the minister here. I've met some of you. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, let me mention, following up on what Nick said, that the banquet on the 14th, I need RSVPs for that. So you need to tell me at some point when you think I'm likely to remember it. Put your name on the list uh, because we'll have to give culinary dropout a, a number before time. So I'll remind you of that again, but uh, RSVP with me as soon as you remember to. Okay, question of the week is what is the good life? What is the good life? Do you know? Um, how do you get the good life? It comes to your mind, you know. Do you think about stuff or family, you know, romantic love, children, uh, pleasure, ability, help being healthy enough to do what you like to do? It's kind of a vague concept. You know, I think we all have the notion we're going to pursue the good life. Uh, it is sort of our duty as Americans to pursue happiness. And so, what is the good life, though? How do you get it? I think the people who know the best to answer that question about us, even more than we know ourselves, are the advertisers. Right? They know uh, what we think the good life is deep down, and they know how to appeal viscerally to that. You know, here's a notion of the good life that we think you really believe, and here's our product in the middle of it. It seems to be a key, right? This is going to make you happy. Uh, they know that uh, the, the diamond commercials before Christmas and before Thanksgiving and really before Halloween, you know, that come on, all have this notion of romantic love and what it's going to mean for you. And in the center of that is their diamond. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who they're after with the big bows on the cars, but, you know, it hasn't actually happened in our family yet, I don't think, the big bow on the car. But it's something that has to do with thriving. You're wealthy enough to be able to buy new Lexus at Christmas and put a big bow on it. Um, and you're probably in a house that looks at least like it's in good repair and pretty nice. You're healthy, you're young. You know, they've got these notions. This is what the good life is, and this is how you can get it by our product. Um, advertisers leave religion out of it, usually. But most people, if you ask them, I might say something about spirituality or something about religion, um, probably more in the, the uh, instrumental form of religion, like um, where God is functioning as a concierge to make our lives go well. You know, he's there so that my idea of what the good life is has a better chance of actually working out of my life because he's going to sponsor it and he's going to make it go well. You don't want to get too religious you know, because you sort of suspect that if you get too close to Jesus that he's going to put a crimp into your plans for the good life. That somehow he's going to limit your happiness and probably keep you from doing the things that would really matter to you and make you happy. So you don't want to overdo the religion part, but you might put that in. Um, bring this up, we're doing a series during Advent, this is the last one, as you might imagine, about why Jesus came. There are several succinct statements in the Bible that describe this is why Jesus came into the world. And today we're going to be in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, um, He came that we might have life and have it in abundance. He came that we might have life. We've said other, other sermons. He came uh, to fulfill the law. He came to defeat the works of the devil. He came to save sinners. He came to be a ransom for many. But today He came to give us life abundantly. And when He talks about what it means for us to live the good life, the abundant life, he draws on an Old Testament metaphor of sheep living securely with their shepherd. 
Um, this whole passage in John 10 is about Jesus being the good shepherd uh, who comes to Israel to cause them to thrive and to be safe, to be cared for, to be at peace. All things that are elusive to us that we can't get easily. Um, things that we talk about in Psalm 23 that Julie read, which is a lot of Christians' favorite psalm uh, because it talks about good times and bad, whether you're in the valley of the shadow of death or whether you're lying in green pastures beside still waters, that God's presence with us and our connection to our shepherd is what fills our lives, causes our cup to run over. It's the connection to him that uh, is the main part of the good life, or you might even say it's the essence of what the good life is. Everything else is, is uh, negotiable. But a connection to our shepherd, being rightly related to him and at peace with him, is the uh, non-negotiable of the good life. And so that's what we're going to talk about as we look at this passage together. Let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that uh, both in our understanding and in our experience, that you would come and meet with us and change us. Um, for those for whom the faith is new, I pray that you would... Uh, Make it seem plausible and uh, let them feel the warmth in Jesus' appeal to us. And for those of us who have been around the faith longer, I pray that you'd let us um, shed the things that tempt us to find the good life in them as substitutes for you. So come speak to us, help us, challenge us, encourage us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning at verse 7 in John chapter 10. So, so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. Do you know who John Merrick is? Um, Some of you will know him, especially from the movie that David Lynch did back when I was in school, many moons ago. Um, He's the elephant man. He's a man who's born in England with severe deformities due to a, a number of strange vascular problems he had in his life and it caused him to be you know, just cruelly misshapen and hideous to look at. You know, his, head, his head was you know, massive. He would wear a burlap bag in public uh, so as not to terrify people when they saw him. Um, he was isolated, of course, socially by this. It's very difficult for him to talk uh, because of the way the uh, deformities in his throat. And so people thought he was either you know, brutally shy, but more often an imbecile, right? that he was mentally deformed as well as physically deformed. He entered a freak show uh, by his own choice for years because it seemed like the only possible way he had to make a living um, and let people gawk at him. And as you can imagine, you know, people were exceedingly cruel to him. Uh, some people were more merciful to him, which is the only reason I would recommend you watching the movie. You know, if you're scrolling through and you get the Elephant Man and then Elf, just watch Elf, is what I would suggest, because it's grim. But uh, it's really well acted and well written. They were about to put him in an asylum, in Mercy, really. A, a doctor 
uh, saw him and wanted to be kind to him and figured he was an imbecile and couldn't really support himself or work. So he had, was going to have him uh, committed to an asylum. Uh, but before he did, he overheard Merrick one night uh, saying out loud in his room the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a really great part of the movie. Um, and it was shocking for a couple of reasons. One, it meant he's, oh, he's, not, he's not an imbecile. He, he's not deformed mentally as well as physically. He's, he's uh, actually a thoughtful person. And we've misread him. But the other thing was that really even more shocking was the 23rd Psalm. Really? You shall not want... Your cup runneth over? Um, you think that your life is a story of God's goodness and mercy pursuing you all the days of your life? That's how you read the story of your life? And it was astounding uh, to them. It feels impossible. How does somebody have a connection to God that is uh, so meaningful in their life that even when... Everything in their circumstances argues against it. They're able to say, I shall not want, and my cup runs over, and goodness and mercy pursue me in my life. How is that possible? I, it sounds like um, hyper-Christianity to me somehow to even suggest that you could have a joy in your life that is not really assailable by circumstances. Like, you could really have a connection to Jesus Christ that gave you a bedrock of joy and peace in your life with Him, uh, regardless of what your circumstances are, whether you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death or lying down in the green pastures. Is that even possible? That's what I want us to think about here, because it's what Jesus is suggesting is available in a relationship with Him. Uh, the life that is abundant life is not a life of material convenience and relational ease any more than his was, right? But it's a life that's rooted in a relationship with him that has its effect on us. And so I want to think together with you about how that could possibly be. Because, yeah, you know, I look at John Merrick and I think he has no advantages and yet came to a place like this in his life with God. And I, having every seeming advantage, have not come anywhere near that. Uh, but there's hope in what Jesus says here for any of us to actually experience what he calls the abundant life with him. So let's think about it. First, let's talk about why abundant, uh, the good life or abundant life is so elusive. Why it's so elusive for us. I mean, we're supposed to be good at it as Americans. You know, the pursuit of happiness is our thing. And really, more than the pursuit of happiness, it's like the expectation of happiness is our thing as Americans. We, we feel like it's normal to be happy. It's normal to be affluent. It's normal to have good relationships in your family and with friends. It's normal to have a good and satisfying job. It's normal uh, to be healthy and have interesting pursuits in your life. And it seems, those things all seem normal to us, despite the lack of evidence that any of that's true for anybody that we know. Uh, certainly not hitting on all eight cylinders. Like, we think that's normal. If you're not, if those things aren't going right in your life, you're probably doing it wrong. Now, you're probably doing it wrong if you have some gaping hole of circumstance in your life that isn't going well. And we think if we raise our children appropriately, if we teach them the right things, educate them the right way, uh, teach them uh, manners, tell them 
you know, to become orthodontist or something that pays a lot, you know, that they're going to be fine and that we can uh, protect them from any of the brokenness of the world with good planning and good decision making. And that seems right to us. It seems like that's how you get to the good life when you live where we live and you are who we are. And a lot of us are tantalizingly close to it. You know, you think, for a lot of you, you think, if I could just change one or two variables in my life, I would be killing it. You know, um, if I could get out of debt, everything would be different for me. I mean, I really would be sort of on easy street at that point, trouble free. If I could just find a romantic partner, um, then all the loose pieces of my life would come together, right? And everything would fit and it would be good. You know, if I could just get healthy again, if I could just uh, not be estranged from that one person that matters to me that I can't connect to, you know, whatever it is, if you feel like if I could just get one or two variables in place, I'd be doing great. Um, Jesus seems to expect the good life to be elusive, though, and what he says about uh, sort of false shepherds, uh, the thieves that break in and steal. You know, he says in verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep did not listen to them. And uh, I don't know who, he, who does he mean when he talks about the thieves and robbers who came before him. A lot of it's preachers, I hate to say. You know, the Old Testament talks about people who were supposed to be shepherds and leaders in Israel who only served themselves. And they get a lot of bad press in the prophets. Um, but in some ways, you know, you'd include the devil in that, please, but you'd also include people who are selling some other version of the good life uh, that says basically you'd be happier without Jesus. Yeah. So these are the thieves that come in. And he says they, don't, they come in to steal and kill and destroy. They don't come in advertising that, I would like to steal and kill and destroy. They come in promising a good life that they want to deliver to use you rather than to love you and serve you. So, I mean, the impression you get is the people stealing sheep are not sweater makers. They are uh, gyro makers. Right? <laughs> They're not looking to fleece you. They're looking to kill you. To steal and kill and destroy. Um, and to use you. As the advertisers do. Right? You think the advertisers... Um, you hope that there's some mixed motive there that they want you to have the good life and the Lexus and all, but it's, uh, it's the idea of we're selling you a picture of the good life because we want to use you. We want to give you money. And on some level, you know, it's not love that motivates the advertisers usually in our lives. They're more thieves. But it's also true of a lot of other people, still true of preachers uh, in many ways and in many places, including this one in many ways. So... They come to steal and kill and destroy. And he says, in contrast to that, I came as a real shepherd, as a good shepherd, uh, to, give, to give you life and to give it to you abundantly and to lay down my life for you to protect you. Right, my life for yours is his attitude towards us, uh, which causes us to be loved in a way that we are not ever otherwise loved. You know, he's, his premise is that the world isn't normal that it's no surprise that you're not happy. It's no surprise that you aren't living the good life yet. That's the way the world is. It's broken because ever since Eden, uh, we've believed a lie that says we'd be happier without Jesus, right? If I run my own life, it'll go better for me. Yeah, the lie of the serpent in Eden was God's withholding. He doesn't really love you or want good for you. He's withholding. And we have believed that lie ever since. Happier without Jesus. 
Um, and the world that we've created trying to be happier without Jesus has left us in a place where even if things go really well for us, our lives have this baseline pointlessness to them. You know, that there's no why answer to the things that we say are important in our lives. Uh, it's just why is a troubling question for us. If I, if I said, hey, I need you to meet me tomorrow morning at 10.30 at Old Main, what would you say? Sir, yes, sir. I assume it's what you would say. You know, but if somebody else asked you, <laughs> you'd say, why? Why? Because it's a good question and a needful question in most circumstances. But if somebody says, well, you need to, um, you need to study hard in school and get a good education. Someone says, why? Well, so you can uh, get a good job when you get out of school. Why? Well, so you can have enough money that you can have a, a comfortable life and provide for your family. Why? Well, so they can grow up and get a good education and get a good job and provide for their families so that they can live the pointless, empty, consumer life that you're living for many generations to come. Right? And the why question is very hard for us, even if, as a people who are pretty obsessed with the idea of happiness. Um, we don't really know what will make us happy, and we certainly don't know why the things that we've decided will make us happy don't. I mean, everybody knows on the day after Christmas that the stuff you wanted, even if you got it, uh, it already loses its shine a day later. I mean, stuff doesn't make you happy, and yet we're all pretty convinced that stuff will. Uh, it's a pervasive kind of a lie, but it's one that is steals and kills and destroys and doesn't give us life. So we seek the good life apart from Jesus, or even if you like add Jesus to your plan for the good life as your concierge, you know, that he's going to be the one to make sure all the good things happen for you, uh, you're not going to have life. You're not going to have the good life. It's not going to be abundant. So let's talk about what difference Jesus makes then. You want the good life. What difference does knowing Jesus make? Um, and basically what he says here is that your desire for the good life, your sense of thriving and flourishing and what human potential is and what you could be and what your life and family could be and what your work could be, that those aren't just vestigial emotions from some evolutionary point in the past, but those are echoes of the voice of the good shepherd in your life. Echoes of Eden. We said, no, we are made for more than this. We are made to thrive. We are made for the good life. Um, even though we haven't been able to create it for ourselves. Uh, these things aren't a tease. You don't have to become a cynic. You just have to look in the right place for the kind of life that you feel like you're made for. Um, so all of us who thought we were going to be happier without Jesus in our lives find that he's come to our rescue. He didn't come to squash us, but he came to rescue us, to show us mercy. Like the psalm says, the good shepherd pursues us with mercy and love all our days. Well, that's what Jesus is doing when he came to earth, to pursue us with mercy and love and to lay down his life for us so that our lives didn't have to be crushed. So that God could be merciful to us and still just, he says, he did what the good shepherd does. Um, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For us to be reconciled to God, which is the 
you know, fundamental breach that causes us not to live the way we were created to live. Uh, Jesus had to come and live and die for us. But because he has lived and died for us, uh, that fundamental breach is healed. That we're forgiven of our rebellion against God, brought back into relationship with him, so that now we look at him not as one who hates us or is angry with us or one who um, despises us and is disappointed with us, but one who is our good shepherd, the one who loves us, open-heartedly loves us, is willing to lay down his life for us. And we're back in this relationship with God that caused all the problems in the first place when it broke. So this is what Jesus came to do. He also came to fix everything else that we broke when we rebelled against him and thought we could be happier without him. Um, But those things aren't fixed yet. And if they're being fixed, it's happening pretty slowly. Now we have reconnection to God that Jesus has brought us. But our hope that our circumstances are going to go great is future. When Jesus finishes his work and comes back, he's going to make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth so that uh, our bodies will work right and our minds will work right, our relationships and our connection to the environment around us will work right. Those things, the circumstantial good life, is future for us. We get a few foretastes of it now. But our hope isn't that Jesus, come in a relationship with Jesus now, everything's going to go great in your life. It doesn't work that way. It didn't go that way in his life. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He didn't have a good life by any measure that we would uh, call something a good life. Um, but what we have now is a good shepherd who's with us, come what may. Right? He's with us, come what may, like the psalm says. Valley of the shadow of death or lying down in green pastures. He's with us. His rod and staff comfort us. And we can stand the valley and we can not be ruined by the pasture uh, because the fundamental non-negotiable in our life is this connection to our shepherd, to Jesus. Right? He's the one that makes our life good. Most, for most people, the one non-negotiable in your life is happiness. Right? Well, i got to be happy. Now, I mean, I like to... I'd like to have God on my side. I'd like to please Jesus for the most part. And I've got principles and values based on that in my life, but, but I will betray those principles and values if I'm provoked by a lack of happiness or a looming lack of happiness in my life. I've got to be happy. Yeah, I mean, I believe that I should be committed to my wife and that I should be faithful to her and love her, but what if she doesn't make me happy? Well, maybe just this one time I'll, I'll set that principle aside, right, and look for somebody else. I hit the restart button. You know, I've got to be happy. And that becomes the fundamental non-negotiable in our lives. And a lot of times it's what screws people over with their religion is because they say, I have to be happy. God's going to make me happy. If I worship and serve Him and pray to Him and He doesn't make me happy, then He let me down and so I don't want anything to do with religion. Picture George Bailey and, and the bar. Uh, I guess that's what I get for praying, right? You remember, it didn't go better because he prayed, and so he jettisoned it because his one non-negotiable wasn't Jesus, it was happiness. But for the good life, Jesus is the one non-negotiable for us. He's not, not our concierge, but our shepherd. And we want him for him. And if we have him for him, then our life is good. And he provides 
in our lives a joy that actually can't be touched by our circumstances. Uh, it can't, we can't get too excited about things going really well for us, and we can't be too despairing when things go badly, uh, because the presence and love of the Good Shepherd doesn't change in our life. And uh, that's what he says is the secret to uh, living the fullest, Christian, uh, the fullest human life that you can live now, is having this kind of connection with your shepherd. Um, and what it means is you don't pursue happiness directly, or the good life directly anymore. You know, that's, it's a byproduct of a relationship with Jesus. And that's different for us. And it definitely, definitely reshapes how you think about bad things that happen when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, as the psalmist said. You know, um, the idea that your connection to God, that He's with you, that His rod and staff comfort you, the idea that that could be enough when your love life uh, is in ruins, uh, when your family life is only... Uh, vexation to you, when your work life is drudgery to you, um, when you're going through some kind of terrible illness or somebody that you love is, you know, for them to be able to say, having my shepherd with me is enough, is a lot to be able to say, if you really mean it. You know, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, some Christians have thought really deeply about this. St. John of the Cross was a, a monk in Spain in the 16th century. And he wrote about what he called the dark night of the soul. I don't know if you've heard that um, idea before. The dark night of the soul is when basically God takes everything away from you that are his benefits and blessings and leaves you just with him so that you can ask yourself the question, is he enough? Now, um, I'm not sure I'm ever going to get anywhere near the level that St. John of the Cross got and I wouldn't expect that kind of severity in God's dealings with most Christians. Right? But usually you get little glimpses of it. Like, here's one thing in your life that you want really badly, that you don't have right now, uh, that sometimes God will work through at least to say, are you able to be content with me even if you don't have that? Right? Can you be content with me if you don't have that? And that's a good... Uh, mirror for you spiritually to look into and say, wow, um, is my relationship with Jesus just instrumental? Do I just want him to be my concierge or do I really want him to be my shepherd? Um, but it also shapes positive things as well. You know, Having Jesus as your shepherd means that the things that you want and rightly enjoy in your life don't become over-important to you. Right? You can hold things in a looser hand. So like money. Money's good. I like money. I would like more money. You know, and that's okay. The uh, idea, though, is that it has to be held in open hands. Um, it can't be the thing that is my non-negotiable for happiness. And God loosens our grip on our money when we're content with our shepherd so that we can live lives of generosity. Even like scary generosity. Like some of you did last year when we did the borehole. Like some of you gave money you didn't have for that. And you can only do that if you can look at money and say, no, I don't have to trust you because the Good Shepherd has me. His rod and staff comfort me. I can do without you. I can even mock your claims on my life by giving you away. And having a Good Shepherd uh, changes the way you think about money and the good life or work. You, know, you don't look at your job as something that's going to make a name for you anymore because you don't need your job to give you a life because Jesus gives you a life. Same thing with romantic love. You don't need somebody else to give you a life. You don't need a kid to give you a life. Um, 
for a spouse to give you a life because you have a life. And if you believe that, it's going to be a lot easier on your spouse and your kids too because it takes a little pressure off of them, right? Um, and if they don't make you exceedingly happy all the time, which remote as the contingency sounds can happen, you know, um, it's okay. You can still love them and be faithful to them and, you know, remember the times when you were a total pill to them and they hung in with you. But you're able to do that because your one chance of having a life in this world isn't the perfect romantic partner. It's a good shepherd. So, you know, I'll just say this. Just that you have sat here this long and listened to us talk about the good life in America and uses our two examples, a deformed freak uh, with absolutely no advantages or no prospects in the world, and said, what can we learn from him about the good life? <laughs> Tells you that maybe we don't know everything about the good life and have a lot to learn. And the other person we're listening to is a homeless Palestinian man, right? whose life was described as a life of sorrows and an acquaintance with grief. And we're saying, look, we don't know how to get the good life. That's why we're asking. And what Jesus says is, the way you're going to find the good life is to be in connection to me as your good shepherd. Now let's pray.